We're in week three of our series, Room for Doubt. And as I begin today's message, I want to read a couple paragraphs from the book. Uh, The title is The Reason Why Faith Makes Sense. So in this book, the, the author, Mark Middleberg, he wrote about his experience in college when he took his first philosophy class. And this is what he has to say. He says, I felt like I was in way over my head. As a business major, I wasn't sure I should even be trying to interact with what seemed at the time to be such lofty and out-of-reach ideas about knowledge, truth, and faith. Then one day, our professor stood up, and he systematically challenged what he called the traditional view of God. He proclaimed that the concept of an eternal, unchanging, and all-powerful God was based on ideas from a book, the Bible, and that this book was written by hopelessly flawed human beings. It had been edited and embellished over time, and it was full of factual errors and, and contradictions. I wanted to refute what the professor was saying, but the thought of getting up in front of the class and challenging this learned teacher made my knees grow weak and my mouth go dry. Worse yet, I, I realized I didn't even know what to say. I didn't agree with him, but I didn't know how to refute his claims. So I felt intimidated and I felt spiritually insecure. I wonder if any of us can relate to this. Maybe at some point in your life, you've had an experience that was similar uh, to Mark's. It kind of reminds me of the student in the movie, God's Not Dead. Just a show of hands, how many of you have seen the movie, God's Not Dead? A great movie. And in in the movie, you have a freshman student in college. His name is Josh Wheaton. Took his first philosophy class. And that's really the the case that the professor was trying to make at the beginning of the class. And, you know, Josh didn't agree with that. He actually felt convicted to stand up and and say something. But really, for a long time, he just struggled to find the words. He struggled to know how to address that. Maybe your experience wasn't in a classroom. Maybe it came from an interaction that you had with a skeptical friend over lunch. Someone who has questions about the faith, but maybe they're more on the defense at this point in their life. And maybe it it comes from an irreligious relative, right? Your your family gets together, your your brother, your sister, your mom, your dad, and and every time there's just some tension because they don't share the same faith. Or maybe it it comes from someone at work who who just doesn't believe what, what you believe. And, you know, during those interactions, I think it's easy to feel belittled because of your decision to trust in the truth claims that the Bible makes. But on the other hand, you have someone telling you that it's a book filled with myths and and mistakes. You know, if you leave those kinds of interactions and and challenges unaddressed in your life, they're just going to start to fester in your mind. And before you know it, waves of doubt will start to affect your entire spiritual life. You're going to be left not knowing what to believe, and and you're probably not going to feel like talking to anyone else about it because of the way it affects you. I believe that it's important that we address the difficult questions, the big issues, and that's really what we're going to do in the later half of this series uh, starting this morning. You know, thankfully, we, we have some great news today. We have great reasons to believe that the Bible is reliable, and that it presents God's uh, truths with accuracy and with authority. I want to talk about a few of those reasons today. So today's message is really uh, meant to help equip you. 
This is an equipping message so that you can take what is said today, add it to your tool belt, and effectively live the life that God has called you to live in your workplace, in your home, with family, with, with friends. Today's message is meant to help equip you by addressing the question, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible reliable? And I think in order for us to address this important question, we're going to have to examine uh, some of the common challenges that skeptics voice uh, about the reliability of Scripture. So you'll notice in your bulletin today, there's no place for you to fill in a word, like a blank, like we usually have. That's already done for you. But what I've done is left you uh, some blanks so that as God speaks to you today, you can write down whatever he's telling you. You can write down a scripture, a thought, something that you can take with you today uh, that can, you, you can use for that equipping process. So skeptic challenge number one is what we're going to call it. If you're looking at your notes. Skeptic challenge number one is this, that the New Testament was written too late to be reliable history. Have you ever heard this claim before? Or maybe something like it? You know, people will say, didn't you know that the New Testament specifically wasn't even written until a century or two after the time of Christ? And during the period in between, all kinds of legends and misinformation crept in, so you can't really trust what the Bible says. You know, if the people who who consistently make these types of truth claims were right, If, in fact, the New Testament hadn't been written until a century or two after the time of Jesus, I'll just be honest with you, that would bother me a little bit. But you need to know something this morning. That's simply not true. That's not the case. In fact, this claim has been thoroughly refuted over and over again, although that doesn't keep people from repeating it over and over again. And in fact, the the events recorded in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, are based primarily on on direct eyewitness testimony. For example, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, as well as three epistles to the church and the book of Revelation, he made it clear that he was simply reporting what he had seen with his own eyes and what he had heard with his own ears. Listen to what John writes in 1 John 1, verse 1. He says this, We proclaim to you, The one who existed from the beginning, whom we have heard and seen. And then he says, we saw him with our own eyes, touched him with our own hands. He is the word of life. Here's what John is saying. He's saying, I I was there. I was actually there. I, I heard these things with my own ears. I've seen these things with my own eyes. And you have other parts of the New Testament that were uh, compiled by writers who got their information directly from other eyewitness testimonies, other eyewitness accounts. You have writers like Luke, uh, Dr. Luke, who was uh, accurate in everything that he did. He wrote the Gospel of Luke and and the book of Acts. This is what he says in Luke 1, verses 1 through 4. He says, many people have set out to write accounts about the events that have been fulfilled among us. They used the eyewitness reports circulating among us from the early disciples. So having carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I also have decided to write an account for you, most honorable Theophilus, so that you can be certain of the truth of everything you were taught. Your friends, I I take a step back and, and just this alone, I think this is amazing. Because here you have men who were careful so that we could be certain. You have men who were careful so that we could be certain. It's clear that these writers were were making the claim that that they themselves were eyewitnesses to the actual events, or at a very minimum, had obtained their information from those who were. 
Also, it's important to understand that their accounts were written down early, soon after the events that they recorded, and easily within the lifespan of the people who were alive when Jesus was alive. In fact, it's now widely accepted. And you need to hear this. This is so important. Even among skeptical historians, even among atheists and people who choose not to believe, that the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all written within the first century. Friends, this speaks to the accuracy of the text. And we also have strong reasons to believe that most of the New Testament was written by about A.D. 70. So in Lee Strobel's book, The Case for Christ, this is a book that we're going to reference a few times in this series. You have a guy, he's a New Testament scholar by the name of Craig Blomberg. He has a good first name, I think. He says these words. He's a New Testament scholar. This is what he's saying. The book of Acts which was written by Luke, it ends apparently unfinished. Now, what I'm about to say, I I didn't ever think about this until this week. I think this is awesome. He says, the book of Acts ends apparently unfinished. He says, Paul, the apostle Paul, is a central figure in the book, and he's under house arrest in Rome. And with that, the book abruptly halts. What happens to Paul? Well, we don't find out from Acts, probably because the book was written before Paul was put to death. And this means that Acts cannot be dated any later than A.D. 62. So having established that, that framework, we can then move backward from there. And since Acts is the second of a two-part work, we know that the Gospel of Luke is the first, Luke must have been written earlier than that. And since Luke incorporates parts of Mark's Gospel, that means Mark is even earlier. So if you allow maybe a year at the most for each of these, you end up with the gospel of Mark being written no later than AD 60, maybe even in the late 50s. So if Jesus was put to death sometime between AD 30 and AD 33, friends, we're talking about a maximum gap of 30 years or so. Now, historically speaking, that's, that's a newsflash. That's amazing news. You see, the gospels, they were written after almost all the letters of Paul whose writing ministry probably began in the late 40s, most of his major letters appearing during the 50s. You know, a few decades back, this would be when I was younger and then even before I was alive, um, it was popular in our culture and around the world to say that the New Testament was written much, much later. For example, Cambridge professor and liberal theologian John A.T. Robinson, he once made this claim every day for his class. But after an extensive amount of research by himself and his co-workers, his colleagues, he made a dramatic turnaround. He later discredited his own previous beliefs, his own work, and he wrote a book entitled Redating the New Testament, which sought to correct what he and others had been teaching. That's huge. In this book, Robinson argues that the entire New Testament was written well within the first century. And he even admits that the claims that he was writing were false. And he he says the claims that other people have that it's written much later were often based on what he called, and he, he was talking about himself, a tyranny of unexamined assumptions and an almost willful blindness. That's what he was saying about his own self. So let's get, let's get back to the big picture for a second. You know, it's clear that the various books that make up the New Testament were written when many of the people who were still alive during the time of Jesus' death and resurrection were, were here. And they would, have been, they would have been able to vouch for its accuracy or challenge any stories that weren't accurate. 
You know, the earliest letters of Paul were written within uh, 25 years of the resurrection. And then you have other major books like uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and Acts that were written within 40 years of the resurrection. Now, historically speaking, that's, that's just not a long time. And when I say that at first, you know, within 40 years, that can sound like a long time, but think of it this way. You know, many of you can remember in detail major events that happened 25 years ago and even 40 years ago. So 25 years ago, 1995, all right, the most popular TV shows at the time, Seinfeld, ER, Home Improvement, Friends. These are things that we remember being on TV. This was also the year that the Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City was bombed, destroyed, and killed 168 people. I was in first grade at the time. I was sitting in class, and I remember that day vividly. The walls of our elementary school began to shake. I remember going home and watching it on the news with my parents. I was in first grade, and I remember these things. My dad went downtown to help move rocks. He actually he kept one of the, the rocks, the piece of the building, because just normal people went down to help clear the rubble and, and to try to save lives. Forty years ago, I wasn't alive yet. Many of you were. 1980, you'll remember that Ronald Reagan was nominated as the Republican candidate for president. How many of you remember that? Yeah, look around the room this morning. You can see the hands go up. You could, probably, you could probably write a paper and explain in detail where you were at and what you were doing during that time. Except Dan. Nineteen eighty, John Lennon was fatally shot in New York City. It's also the year that uh, post-it notes went on sale for the first time nationwide, and now we use those every single day in the office. I thank God for post-it notes. (laughs) (laughs) So my point is this: if somebody tried to rewrite history about any of these events, it would be quickly detected, disputed, and corrected. See where I'm going with this? When it comes to the timeline of when the New Testament books were written, we can be certain that they were written very close to the actual events that they describe. And we can have confidence that what it records is both accurate and trustworthy. Everybody take a deep breath. Skeptic challenge number two, if you're taking notes. The Bible is full of myths and stories of miracles that can no longer be believed by thinking people. You know, someone may tell you, the Bible is full of claims about ancient prophecies, virgin births, divine miracles, people walking on water and rising from the dead. And we now live in an age of science, and we we can't trust truth claims like this anymore. We can't believe what the Bible has to say. But you might ask that person in response, so have you really investigated the events for yourself, for or against any of these things? Have you concluded that they didn't happen? You know, usually, not always, but usually the answer that you're going to get will be something like this. Well, I don't need to do that because others have done it. Or because these kinds of events, they just simply don't happen. But you see what they're doing when they say this. You see, in most cases, the person has predetermined what they're going to say, often without any real investigation on their own. It doesn't matter what field you're in. It doesn't matter if you're a believer or not a believer. That's, that's not only bad history and science, that's bad philosophy as well. In fact, that's what's known as, as circular reasoning. This also demonstrates an anti-God bias, or what scholars call, and this is our big word for the day, all right? Anti-supernatural presupposition. 
It's what scholars call anti-supernatural presupposition. That's a big word for me. So I'm going to put it in, in terms we can all understand. This is, friends, this is old-fashioned prejudice against Christian truth claims. That's all it is. These people have prejudged the situation without really looking into it for themselves. They heard it in a movie. They heard a professor say it, a friend say it. They haven't looked into the evidence themselves. We need to challenge them to be open, uh, more open-minded, to pay attention to the eyewitness testimonies, to look at the evidence, and to have the courage to follow the evidence wherever it may lead. You look at the Bible itself, there's a lot of powerful evidence within God's word itself. For example, there are amazing prophecies that were fulfilled in detail hundreds of years before they were written. Or sorry, sorry, hundreds of years after it was written. I'm going to mention just a few. I'm going to throw these up on the screen this morning. But I want to encourage you to go back and reread these for yourself when you have the time. So Isaiah chapter 53 is one example. Isaiah 53 predicts the coming of a suffering servant who would be punished in our place. And it even says that he would be pierced for our iniquities. This was written by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before the time of Christ. And it even made this prediction that he would be pierced centuries before crucifixion was even invented. This wasn't a method of putting someone to death at that time. And then you have Psalm chapter 22, written about a thousand years before the time of Christ. It describes Jesus' suffering in detail. It says, A pack of villains encircle me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. Friends, when we read the New Testament, this is exactly what the soldiers were doing when Jesus was crucified. And these are amazing descriptions of what was to come on the day when Jesus was crucified. And then you have Micah chapter 5, specifically verse 2. I think this might be my favorite. Again, hundreds of years ahead of time, predicts that the Messiah would be born in the tiny town of Bethlehem. This is exactly what happened. And yes, Jesus really did heal people. He really did cast out demons, walk on water, and turn water into wine. And you know what's, what's really interesting about all of these things? None of Jesus' enemies at the time denied that he did any of these things. I think that's amazing. The evidence was just too overwhelming. Instead, what they would try to do is catch Jesus on a technicality. They say something like, sure, I mean, you healed a guy's withered hand, but you did it on the Sabbath day. You have to remember, Jesus, that's a no-no. We don't work on the Sabbath. We don't heal people on the Sabbath. But by blaming Jesus for healing someone on the Sabbath, they were admitting that he had done a miracle. Think about this for a moment. If, if a God like the one presented in the creation account really exists, then it would be nothing for a God like that to foretell the future, bring about a virgin birth, perform miraculous healings, or even raise someone from the dead. I mean, if you can create the entire universe out of nothing in a fraction of a nanosecond, then doing something like calming a storm, causing Peter to catch a fish with a coin in its mouth, these things wouldn't be that hard. (laughs) Friends, we serve an awesome God. Amen. 
In addition, many of the biblical stories have confirmed by secu- have been confirmed by secular history as well. I think this is where it, it gets really interesting. So, for example, many of the New Testament claims were later reinforced by outside reports, like the ones made by Thallus. And then you have Roman historians, Tacitus and Suetonius. And you have Jewish historian Josephus and, and many others. The list goes on and on. According to, to modern-day historian Gary Habermas, he's the author of the book The Historical Jesus, he claims that there are at least 39 ancient sources outside of the biblical text that provide over 100 facts about Jesus' life, teaching, death, and resurrection. The Bible is not the only text that talks about Jesus. We have all of these others. And we simply don't have the time this morning to go into the rich history of archaeology and describe how time and time again it is confirmed biblical details, including the discovery of Old Testament people like, like the Hittites. And you have cities that have been discovered like Sodom and Jericho with its collapsed wall that once surrounded the city. Other discoveries have confirmed the existence and the dates of Pilate, the guy who put Jesus under trial, as well as the existence of many of the cities and places that are referenced throughout the New Testament. These are all extra-biblical accounts. See, friends, the Bible is not a book of of myths and made-up stories. It's God's inspired word filled with verifiable facts. Skeptic challenge number three. The Bible can't be trusted because it's full of contradictions. The Bible can't be trusted because it's full of contradictions. You know, someone might say, I still can't trust the Bible because it's chock full of mistakes and contradictions. One simple thing that you can say in reply is this, you know, really what, what mistakes and contradictions are you referring to? Again, generally people won't be able to point to anything They're they're repeating something they've heard from someone else, something they've seen in a movie, a TV show. And again, that's because they haven't really studied it for themselves. But when this does happen, I think it's okay to gently and respectfully, as as 1 Peter chapter 3 says, to challenge them to stop attacking the things that they haven't even examined for themselves and to try to look at the Bible with an open mind. With that being said, some people will have specific passages that they point to. And I want you to understand this morning that most of the conflicts that people try to highlight are really not that hard to to answer. For example, many skeptics will point out that one of the gospels says that there was an angel present at Jesus' tomb, while another gospel says there were two angels. Sounds like we could have a, a, a contradiction here. Or they'll highlight that in one account, Jesus seems to have ridden on one donkey in his triumphal entry to Jerusalem, while the other account mentions two donkeys. And they'll say something like, you know, I mean, how how can you trust a book if it was written by people who couldn't even count well? (laughs) Friends, I'm I'm not good at math, but here's some math that I can understand. Wherever there are two, there is also one. Wherever there are two, there is also one. You see, the fact that one eyewitness only mentions a single angel or a single donkey doesn't mean that there couldn't have been more than that. The writer is not commenting on how many there were. He's just indicating that there were some. 
But then the other gospel writer will go further and give more detail, saying, well, there were actually two, or there were actually three. This really isn't a contradiction. It would be like me leaving our our service today and telling my wife that, hey, there was someone in the congregation today with a short-sleeve shirt on, and they were wearing a short-sleeve shirt because the weather's getting nicer, spring's coming. I don't know if that was so true today. I I woke up and there was ice on my windshield. (laughs) Gary, you're a little early, man. Nick as well. (laughs) So it would be like me making a statement like that. Now, if my wife noticed that, hey, there were actually three guys in the congregation wearing short uh, short sleeve shirts, I don't think that she would corner me in the hallway and accuse me of lying. It's it's just not going to happen. See, I would still be correct in saying that there was a guy who was wearing a short sleeve shirt today, but she would also be correct in giving more details by highlighting how many there actually were. Do you, you understand that? Other things that are sometimes called contradictions in the Bible are when writers present general descriptions. And this is something all of us do. It's like when you go on vacation and you come back and you give someone a brief summary because you've told it like 10 times at that point. You know, by the 10th person, you're like, hey, I went here. It was fun. I came home. You know, you're sick of telling the story. Or when we use round numbers. You know, there were about a thousand people at the mall today. Not at our mall. (laughs) Maybe like 10, but. (laughs) Or you give figures of speech. You know, in other words, many of the biblical writers tend to, to talk much like we talk today. And yet critics of the Bible often try to force a scientific or mathematical standard of precision on these ancient writers that we don't even live up to today. None of us do. You know, a lot more could be said about this specific subject. And and I want to be the first to acknowledge that, yes, there are some challenges that are presented that that are not easy to answer. They take time. They take study and dedication to, to find the answer. But I would also remind you this, that the Bible has been affirmed over and over again. And I believe it has shown us in ample ways that it's a reliable source of God's revelation and one that warrants our attention and our confidence. We can trust that what the Bible presents is is accurate, trustworthy, and that it's not full of contradictions. Skeptic challenge number four. The Bible has been corrupted over time. The Bible has been corrupted over time. This is an often repeated objection to the reliability of Scripture. People will say something like, you know, you can't, you can't trust the Bible. It's been translated and retranslated so many times that you can no longer rely on anything that it says. This objection is uh, sometimes compared to the children's game of telephone. How many of you know about the game telephone? All right, if, if you don't, here's what you do. You get a group, you get in a circle, and one person decides on a sentence that they're going to pass through the group. So they share this sentence with the person next to them. Their job is to accurately translate it word for word to the next person. So they'll say it exactly how they heard it. And then the next person says it how they heard it, and so on and so forth. This is a really fun game for kids, but and even adults, I like to play it too. But it's a terrible illustration for how we, have, how we got our Bible today. See, our Bible is not the end of some long chain of translations from one language to the next, say from Greek to Latin, and then Latin to German, and then German to to English, and then so on and so forth. 
Rather, it's a direct translation from the ancient manuscripts in the original languages. We have Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New. It reminds me when I was serving as a youth minister at Clayton Christian Church in Clayton, Indiana. A few of you have actually been uh, to this church. We, we stopped in as a pit stop on our way to Kentucky on a mission trip. And one of the missionaries and missions that we supported was Pioneer Bible Translators. Um, I absolutely love this mission and ministry. Their heart is to go into uh, unreached people groups, learn their language, build relationships, and then figure out how to translate the Bible into their language because they don't have it. Now, what they don't do, and this is really important to understand, is they don't come back to America and grab, you know, an English Bible and try to translate it word for word and, you know, on some white piece of paper and take it back and say, hey, here, here's your Bible. No, they go to the ancient manuscripts. They look at the original Hebrew and the Greek and they translate it as accurately as possible. Every good translation, and there are some bad ones, I would say, every good translation goes back to the earliest and best documents. And based on many years of linguistic and cultural studies, puts what was written there into accurate language that people can understand today. And the result is that we can easily read, easily comprehend what was originally written by the biblical writers. It's not one language to the next. We go back to the ancient manuscripts that we have. Now, here's something I think you need to be aware of, and I don't think this is a hindrance at all. In the case with all ancient writings, and we don't have the original handwritten document or documents because those disintegrated a long time ago, but we do have a number of reliable copies. And what makes the New Testament specifically really stand out is that we have so many more copies of the original text than we have for any other ancient work, period. And there's, there's so much earlier copies as well. So according to New Testament scholar, Dr. Daniel B. Wallace, this is what he, he says, we have an embarrassment of riches compared to the data the classical Greek and Latin scholars have to contend with. He says, the average classical author's literary remains number no more than 20 pieces. By comparison, and this is so important, for the New Testament, we have more than 5,800 copies of early Greek manuscripts and more than 20,000 copies in other languages. So 5,800 plus copies in the original Hebrew and Greek and over 20,000 in other languages. And and Dr. Wallace goes on to explain, we have more than 1,000 times the manuscript data for the New Testament than we do for the average Greco-Roman author of its day. And not only this, but the manuscripts of the average classical author are no earlier than 500 years after the time of the original author. For the New Testament, we're waiting mere decades for surviving copies. Decades. Not 100 years, 200 years, three, not 500 years, just decades. The bottom line is this, that the modern translation of the Bible that that are available to us today are extremely accurate and trustworthy renditions of the original biblical text. And friends, we can read them with great confidence that they say exactly what the original text said. I want to summarize what we talked about today because there's, there's kind of a lot here. 
And I think for many of us, there might be one nugget or two that you take with you that you think, wow, that really stood out to me today. So I'll give you a brief summary. Number one, the the New Testament was written early and presents reliable historical accounts of God's activities through Jesus. Number two, the Bible is not a book full of myths and legends, but it does tell about the amazing ways that God worked through Jesus, including fulfilled prophecies and miracles. Number three, the Bible is not full of contradictions. And most of the alleged differences that people have or, or, or try to claim about the Bible are pretty easily answered if you, just, if you just look. And finally, the Bible has not been corrupted over time. Rather, the Bibles that we have today are highly accurate and reliable translations of the original text. So the question today is this. Is the Bible reliable? Can we trust the Bible? Friends, I believe the evidence tells us overwhelmingly that yes, we can. Jesus trusted it. In fact, Jesus explicitly endorsed the Old Testament. And he said this about his own teaching in the New Testament. In Matthew 24, verse 35, he said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Our church trusts the Bible. Amen? I trust the Bible in my own life, and I want to encourage you to do the same. There's a but, a comma. You're not going to benefit from God's word by keeping it closed. You can't put the Bible on your nightstand or under your pillow and think that it's going to somehow magically influence your life. Part of the Gallup polls that we have in the Gallup family, it was George Gallup Jr. who once said, and I think accurately so, he said, Americans revere the Bible. Americans love the Bible. They revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. I want to end our time today with this challenge. This week, I want to challenge you to pick up a Bible and begin reading. It does no good if it sits on your nightstand or under your pillow or on your family bookshelf collecting dust. It might look good there, but it doesn't do any good in your life. And today, if you've been struggling with doubts about your faith, I want you to remember what Romans chapter 10, verse 17 says. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ.